Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. But that 4 o'clock p.m. is really important because if you come back to the river at 4.30 to be crossed over, you are not coming back until No, you're the staying in the um, little village overnight. <laughs> you, you got the next day at 9 a.m. You'd be right there, ready to go. <laughs> and I'm not sure what the lodging facilities are in that little town. You might be bedding down with the burrows. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not miss the 4 p.m. cutoff. No, I would not either. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're taking you to southwest Texas, to a remote and rugged national park located in one of the last remaining wild corners of the United States, Big Bend National Park. From an elevation of less than 1,800 feet along the Rio Grande to nearly 8,000 feet in the Chisos Mountains, Big Bend includes massive canyons, vast expanses of desert, forested mountains, and the winding Rio Grande River. We'll be sharing a lot of information today, including, of course, a fascinating history channel, our favorite hiking trails, and other places you won't want to miss seeing when you're visiting the park. And we'll talk about a major construction project starting later this year that might impact your visit. All this and more coming up next. Okay, Karen, new episode. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Big Bend is big. There's a lot to do. But before we jump in, there are a couple of important announcements we need to make. One is a correction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So on a recent mailbag episode, we had a listener write in wondering about the hiker shuttle in Glacier National Park. Her specific question was, does she need a reservation for the hiker shuttle like people used to have to get? And the answer we told her is no. You no longer need a reservation for the hiker shuttle, but we also told her that she would need a going to the Sun Road day use reservation to get to the Apgar Visitor Center, and that's where you pick up the shuttle. Yes. Now, that's how it used to be. We had to show our reservation at the entrance station. But several people messaged us and said that the park has moved the Going to the Sun Road reservation checkpoint from the entrance station to a spot that's past Apgar, which is such great news because now anyone can go to Apgar Visitor Center. You don't have to have a reservation for going to the Sun Road. They moved the checkpoint past Apgar. So you can go to the Visitor Center, you can catch the hiker shuttle, and you don't need a day-use reservation. Yeah. And thanks to the listeners who brought that to our attention. Yes, thanks for the clarification on that. We just wanted to let everyone know. And then the other um, thing we wanted to mention, this is also related to day-use reservations in the park. We mentioned this before, but it has now finally happened. Mount Rainier National Park will be requiring day-use reservations for summer 2024. And they haven't done this in the past, have they? This is brand new. Yeah, yeah. People are going to squeal about this, but it's it's necessary. Yeah, for anybody who has visited in the last year or two, the lines to get into the park have been unbelievable. People wait for hours. So 
you know, they thought this was necessary, and it really is. Now, we don't have time in this episode to go into the details about the day use reservation system, but it's all online on the Mount Rainier National Park website. And we will talk more about this in detail in our next mailbag episode in February. Yeah, so if you're planning to go to Mount Rainier National Park this year, 2024, you better check the website for all the details because it's likely you'll need a day-use reservation. Yes. So again, national park trip planning for the summer is now one step more complicated as another park joins the ranks of the other parks who require day-use reservations. All right, but that is not the subject of our episode today, Karen, is it? No, it's not. But before we dive into the details about Big Bend, we wanted to talk about a really important uh, construction project that is going to be starting later this year because it impacts virtually every visitor to Big Bend, and that is the upcoming closure of Chiso's Mountain Lodge. Yeah, if you haven't been to Big Bend, there is a desert area, there's a river area, there's also mountains. There's the little mountain range right in the middle of the park, the Chiso's Mountains, there is a lodge there. It's been there for quite a while, uh, but it's getting taken out and rebuilt. That's right. Now, the Chisos Mountain Lodge was built back in 1964. The soil underneath the lodge has been unstable for a long time, and it's wreaked havoc on the foundation and the walls. Plus, the number of visitors to the park has surged, and now the lodge and the the dining room there can't keep up with the number of visitors. That's where we stayed when we visited back in 2010. And I have to say, so we were in one of those motel-style rooms, and it was fairly run down and outdated. I think that the bedspread and the carpet that were in there likely dated back to 1964. Right. It was historical. They had the original <laughs> bedspreads, which I liked. Made you feel like you were in 1964. It did. You know, we we don't mind a rustic room at all. This was uh, more on the rundown category. The sink was cracked, you know, that kind of thing. So this lodge definitely needs an upgrade, but it's getting more than an upgrade. It's going to be completely rebuilt. So in 2019, the park staff began the process of evaluating a new lodge. And the, the best option for them was to tear down the old one and build a new one within the same footprint. But this new lodge will meet the high standards now required for energy, water, and that kind of thing. Will they have solar panels? Yes, they will, actually. there. Um, there's going to be a long angled roof oriented to the south that will have solar panels. And there's going to be a huge outdoor terrace. They uh, they developed the plans for the new lodge in 2021, and I saw a drawing of it. It looks beautiful. Yeah, I bet it is. It's, it's a beautiful setting. I'm sure they're going to do a great job. Uh, they've gotten a boost in funding from the Great American Outdoors Act, so... They're getting money to do that, which is great. Uh, that th that will be a fantastic lodge. It's going to take. It's going to be a little bit of a disruption to visitors as they're tearing the old one down, and putting up the new one. That's right. They say the construction is supposed to start at the end of 2024, and it will take two years to complete. And this is going to greatly impact visitors because Chisos Mountain Lodge is the only lodging inside the park, and it's the only full-service restaurant in the park. So once this is you know, taken out of service for two years, the lodging options will be slim, but we'll talk about uh, some lodging options later in the show. Right. So bring whatever food you're going to need to the park because you're not going to get any in the park. Right. And camping is going to be looking like a really good option for those two years. Right. All right. So that's the latest news out of Big Bend. But uh, Matt, let's uh, let's dive into our overview, our our seven page overview. <laughs> yeah, I keep scrolling through the outline. <laughs> I know there's a bottom of it somewhere, but I can't find it anyway. Yeah. So Big Bend, what the heck is Big Bend? It's in southwestern Texas. It's really in the middle of nowhere. It's uh, adjacent to the Mexican border. Uh, not terribly easy to get to. You, you're going to drive to it. Right. And because it's so remote, a lot of people, including us, add on other national parks to visit on the same trip. 
Yeah, when we visited, uh, we were there at the end of October. We did a three national park trip. So we flew into El Paso, rented a car, spent the night there in, in El Paso, and then we drove to Guadalupe Mountains National Park, which is under two hours away from El Paso. Uh, so we spent the day there. We did a couple of hikes. We we did not do the peak hike on that trip, but we did go back and do the peak hike on a different trip. And then from there, we drove to Carlsbad, New Mexico and spent the night there. Right, because there is not much lodging around Guadalupe Mountains or Carlsbad Caverns. So we spent the night in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and the next day drove back to Carlsbad Caverns National Park, spent the day there, and that night we continued on to Pecos, Texas, about 90 miles away where we spent the night. Yeah, I don't remember staying in Pecos, Texas. (laughs) Do we have pictures of that? I know we did, (laughs) but... (laughs) <laughs> it was that unmemorable for you, Matt. <laughs> yeah. There's not a whole lot on that drive. Well, no. And the thing is, too, there is not a lot to do in the evening in Carlsbad, New Mexico. So you might as well spend the time driving to, you know, to get closer to Big Bend, which is what we did. So after spending the night in uh, Pecos, it only took us a, a little over two hours to get to the northern entrance to Big Bend. Yeah, and then we had three days in Big Bend. We, Like we said, we stayed at the Chisos Mountain Lodge, mm-hmm. did a lot of hiking, and then drove back to El Paso to fly home. So that was a great three-park trip. Although, if you're going to do it now, you could also add White Sands National Park, which is in New Mexico, southern New Mexico, not too far from Carlsbad. And that's about 90 minutes north of El Paso. So you could really turn this into a four-national park trip. Right. If you have the time. Now, we didn't add on White Sands when we went because it was not a national park yet, and it just wasn't on our radar. But it's a beautiful park. It's easy to see in less than a day. If you had a half day, you could see most of the park. So yes, as long as you're going all the way down there, we would absolutely recommend adding in White Sands National Park to these other parks. So how did Big Bend get its name, Karen? Well, Matt, it was named Big Bend because of the way the Rio Grande River changes its course. It bends, so to speak, from a southeastern to a northeastern flow. Right. So if you look at a map of Texas, uh, there's a there's a bump out on the southern border. And if you basically just draw a line straight through that as if the border didn't have that Big Bend, uh, that bump out, that is the national park, that whole area is essentially the national park. And it's huge. Over 801,000 acres. Uh, That's about 1,200 square miles. And did you know, Matt, it's the 15th largest park in the national park system. I didn't know it was 15. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see what else you know. Okay. Guess what it's time for. Let's have a little pop quiz. We haven't done this in a while. Oh, you want me to quiz you? (laughs) No, I have a question for you. Okay. All right. So we just said that Big Bend is the 15th largest national park. Could you tell us, Matt, what are the three largest national parks in the national park system? Wrangell-St. Elias is number one. Very good. Uh, I know Death Valley is in the top three. Is that your final answer? (laughs) Well, I mean, there's, there's... Gates of the Arctic has got to be huge. If we're just talking national park, national parks, I would say Gates of the Arctic, second, maybe Death Valley, third. Kobuk Valley is probably in there. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to this question. Okay. So you did you did pretty well. Two out of three. Yes. Wrangell St. Elias is number one at 13.2 million acres. Gates of the Arctic is number two at 8.5 million acres. But it's Denali that comes in at number three with 6.1 million acres. Death Valley is actually the fifth largest national park with 3.4 million acres. So who's number four? 
Uh, that would be Katmai National Park uh, with 4.3 million acres. Katmai. Yes, I know. <laughs> they've got a lot of land that we didn't see. Exactly. We were in a little tiny, tiny, tiny part of the park. Right. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> there you go. If you exclude Alaska, I think I think uh, Death Valley is the largest in the lower 48. That is correct, right. Okay, but so. Alaska has four out of the top five largest national parks. So there you go. And as we mentioned in the intro, the highest point in the park is Emory Peak at just under 8,000 feet. And the lowest point is Rio Grande Village at about 1,800 feet. So a pretty big swing of elevation there. Yeah, and something to know that this park, it has 118 miles of shared border with Mexico. Now, that border is the river. It's the Rio Grande River. Right. And a lot of that is canyons and kind of steep areas. This is a this is a difficult place to cross the border if you're going either way. Yeah, the park says that drug smuggling and illegal border crossings do occasionally occur. And their advice is if you see anything that looks illegal, suspicious, or out of place, don't stop or intervene. But note the location, the time, the direction of travel, and then call 911 when possible. Right. All right. I guess what it's time for now, Matt? It's time for a little bit of history. Karen, do you have any history about this area? You know, I feel like we haven't done History Channel in a really long time. (laughs) It's your department. I know. (laughs) So I'm happy to be back. All right. So as in most national parks, indigenous people have roamed this land for thousands of years. But we are going to fast forward to the late 1800s because I want to talk about how it became a national park. So in the 1880s, Big Bend Country was a rancher's dream. There were native grasses and there was water in the form of creeks and springs and land was cheap. However, so many ranchers migrated into Big Bend to raise their livestock that the land was soon overgrazed. By the late 1890s, with the discovery of mercury, also known as quicksilver, mining replaced ranching as the main economic force of the region. And settlers came to the area to either work in the mines or they supported the mines um, in areas like farming or cutting timber for the smelters. Yeah, the smelters. I mean, that's... (laughs) The smelters are always the one who's, who make the big money. Well, yes, because yeah. that's that's a key job. It is a key mm. job. But by the 1930s, there were a lot of people who thought that this area was really special and it was worth preserving for future generations. So the state of Texas created... Texas Canyon State Park in 1933 and started developing facilities with the help of the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. So several hundred young men, most of whom were Hispanic, worked in the Chisos Mountains between 1934 and 1942. And like most of the CCC crew, they only used picks and shovels and rakes. The workers surveyed and built the seven-mile access road up into the Chisos Mountains Basin. They scraped, dug, and blasted 10,000 truckloads of earth and rock, and they built 17 stone culverts, which are still in use today along the Basin Road. So when you drive up there, make sure and take a good look at the stone culverts. Are you talking to me? <laughs> I, I've already made my one History Channel comment, which is one more than I'm allowed to. So, All right. A second CCC camp was established in Big Bend in 1940, and this group built the Lost Mine Trail, one of our favorite trails. They built a store and four stone cottages that are still used as lodging today. These CCC men surveyed the park boundary, built trails and facilities. And, you know, again, as we keep talking about, this is this park is a lasting tribute to to the CCC men whose hard work is still being enjoyed by park visitors today. 
All right. In 1935, the federal government passed legislation to establish a national park, but it took almost 10 years and a lot of hard work for this park to become a reality. In the midst of the Great Depression, park supporters had to come up with the money to purchase all the land within the proposed park. In 1942, $1.5 million was allocated by the state of Texas to purchase approximately 600,000 acres from private owners. So they bought the park. Yes, they did. And you know what's really cool about this? The state of Texas delivered the deed to the federal government in 1943 And Big Bend National Park was officially established in June of 1944. So it's called Texas's Gift to the Nation, created and funded by the state instead of, you know, first being a national monument and then having its status changed. Right. So thank you to Texas for that gift. Absolutely. It's a gift that keeps giving. Right. What an incredible gift. All right. So within a few weeks of becoming a national park, the uh, NPS located its headquarters to the CCC barracks in the basin. And in its first year, they recorded 1,400 visitors. So, you know, back then, this was a remote park with no paved roads, and it was virtually unknown to the general public. Um, But in the 60s, the modern age of tourism began, and the area started becoming known as a destination for adventure travelers, rafters, and hikers, and it kind of found its way um, onto the map, so to speak. Uh, River companies were established, and the first national championship chili cook-off was held in Terlingua. What about birders? Have you heard about birders? The birders go to Big Bend. It's a big birding area, man. It's a man. big birding yes. area. We yes. don't do birds. No, but you do have that Life List of Birds book. I do. I've got <laughs> I've got the Western Tanager and uh, a crow and a robin so far. <laughs> Sorry, Sue, Sue gave me that book. Well, okay. take it to Big Bend and you'll probably be able to add uh, a lot of birds onto your list. There have been 450 species of birds reported in the park and 56 species who live there year-round. Okay. Yeah, so in the last three years, the annual visitation to the park has boomed. They're now getting over 500,000 visitors, which isn't a lot compared to other parks, but you have to remember this is concentrated in about a six-month period. Right, it gets super hot in the summertime. The busy season really is November through April. Because that's the best weather. There's a lot of spring breakers. Uh, Spring breakers used to go to White Sands National Park until they cut off alcohol during spring break season in that park. So they're heading down to Big Bend. (laughs) That's right. So if you can avoid going from mid-March to early April, you know, those kind of three weeks of, of people's spring breaks, that would be good because it is very crowded at that time. You know, we liked going at the end of October. The weather, I mean, it was still hot, but it was very, um, very doable, very hikeable. So we would recommend uh, maybe late fall would be a good time to visit Big Bend. Right. End of October was still hot. I remember uh, mid-90s days when we were hiking in the desert, which were fine because we were prepared for it. We had the water, but uh, just know that you know a lot of times here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, late September, early October, we're hiking in an inch of snow in the mountains to see the larches, and it feels like fall and winter's coming. And then you go to Big Bend in late October, and you are back in full summer. Which is kind of nice, um, you know, if you want to be hiking out in shorts and uh, short sleeves. Okay, Karen, let's talk about visitor centers. Uh, they do have the Panther Junction Visitor Center, which is really, that's the best place to begin your visit. Like we always say, go to the visitor center first, talk to a ranger, tell them what you're thinking about doing in the park. They will give you good current information. Right. And it's like most visitor centers where they have um, exhibits. There's a theater where you can see the park movie. They have the Natural History Association bookstore. They have a post office. They have all those things that people are looking for. So yes, Panther Junction Visitor Center is the main one. It's open all year round. Now, the Chisos Basin Visitor Center is typically opened year round But will it be open once construction has started on the new lodge? Park officials are still working on a plan for the Chisos Basin, 
But, you know, I would kind of think that it would because there are a lot of hiking trailheads up there that people are going to still want to access. Yeah, you're going to have to check the website because um, it could be they're, they're they're going to have to bring in a lot of equipment, a lot mm-hmm. of workers. I, I could see them closing that whole area off, including the trails. So stay tuned and check the website because I think that visitor center will have to close temporarily at least. And there is another one, the Castellon Visitor Center, which is in the Castellon Historic District. This is only open during the winter season, so it is seasonal. That's worth a stop as well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, let's talk about things to do. A lot of hiking. Yes. And there's uh, a few different areas of the park we want to talk about separately. Right. We've kind of separated it out to river hiking, mountain hiking, and desert hiking. As we said, this is a very diverse park. So there there are all kinds of different areas. Now, as far as river hiking, we'll start with the Santa Elena Canyon. Everyone has to go see Santa Elena Canyon, even if you don't want to do this little short hike. Yeah, it's a beautiful area. You can drive all the way down to the river and where the little parking area is, it's where the river comes out of the canyon. So you're standing against the river and it's flat right there where you're standing. But then if you look to the west, you see the canyon. So that's a great spot to see both the river and then a peek into the canyon. Right. And there is a short trail there. It's 1.7 miles round trip, and it will take you to the mouth of the canyon. Now, here's the thing. You have to cross Terlingua Creek. And sometimes there's very little water in it, and sometimes it's impassable. Oftentimes it's muddy. So just know that to do that hike, you are crossing the creek, and you'll have to, you know, just go there and assess it. It might be simple. It might be impassable. Right. And that's yet another thing you could ask a ranger at the visitor center. They might know what the condition of that creek is. So that's the Santa Elena Canyon area. There's also the Boquillas Canyon Trail, and that's a different part of the park. It's it's a little bit of a drive to get from Santa Elena Canyon to the Boquillas Canyon, even though they're both along the river. That's right. Now, this trail is 1.4 miles round trip. So again, it's very short. It climbs up from the parking lot to the top of a cliff that overlooks the Rio Grande. And then it continues down to the river's edge and back into the canyon until the canyon walls meet and you can't go any further and you turn around. We thought this was one of the better views of the river itself as it kind of winds through the landscape. Yeah, that was a fun little area. So back when we visited the park, uh, they did not have any river crossing right there going back and forth across the border. What some merchants were doing in Mexico is they were crossing the river, putting handmade trinkets and things along the trail with a little sign coffee can, you know, how much it costs. And then they would go back over the river and they would actually watch us as we came down the trail, shouting encouragement for us to, you know, buy some of their goods. I don't know if that is still going on now. But it could be. When we were there, the park rangers had told us ahead of time not to purchase any of those because the the Mexican nationalists were crossing the river illegally. This was a time after 9-11 when the border was closed. And currently, it's still illegal to purchase any of these trinkets left by the river. Um, However, you can legally purchase these Mexican handcrafted items at camp stores inside the park. So these items are purchased directly from Mexican artisans, and then they're processed through the port of entry before being brought into the park. And all the wholesale proceeds go to the artisans. Yeah, you had your eye on some beaded scorpions. You like those. They were pretty cool. (laughs) They were cool. Uh, Maybe they have some of those at the visitor center that I can get. Anyway, back when the border was closed, visitors to the park couldn't cross the river to the little town of Boquillas del Carmen. However, that has changed. 
Yeah, that's good. It's changed because when we were there, we saw someone on the U.S. side swim across the river, and then he stood on the Mexican border and waved to us. Well, and what was also odd was he was in his underwear. He had stripped down and left his clothes on the U.S. side of the river. I'm not sure what his plan was. I don't know either. They were all dressed up, uh, protecting themselves from the sun. Uh, He and his wife, they were covered up every inch of them, and then he took all his clothes off and swam across (laughs) that river. And I have no idea how he was planning on getting back because then by the time he got there he was at a really rough part of the of the river well yeah because the current took him downstream it wasn't a good plan no and thank goodness the current didn't take him into the canyon itself because he would have never gotten out no no. yeah so don't do that but there's a mexican village not too far from that area and now you can legally cross the river if you want to visit it That's right. So if you're interested in doing that, first of all, you will need to have a passport. Very important. And then you park at the Boquillas Crossing Port of Entry. You'll go through the building, walk a short distance along the Rio Grande to the river crossing. There are um, several people who operate rowboats that will shuttle visitors back and forth across the river. Now, it says on the NPS website, quote, Walking across the river is permitted only at the Boquillas Crossing, but it is not recommended if the river is high or really any other time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a, um, a dirty river, and that, that's not a, an, an opinion or a judgment of the river. That Rio Grande, by the time it gets to that point, it's come through a lot of urban areas where there's there's a lot of stuff in the river that you don't want on you. Right. A lot of bacteria going through that river. So we would not suggest walking, swimming, wading, anything uh, where you are immersed into the water. So once you get to the Mexican side of the Rio Grande um, and you've paid your fee, costs $5 per person to be rowed across, um, they give you a ticket that you'll show at the end of your visit so they will row you back. But to get to the little town of Boquillas del Carmen, you can either walk or you can ride a burro, a horse, or in a vehicle for an additional fee. I'd love to do that. Next time we're there, I, I, I would like to do that crossing. I'd like to go to the little village. Would you like to ride a burrow? <laughs> I can see you bouncing just, along. <laughs> no, I just probably walk. My my legs would probably drag on the ground. <laughs> They'd give me a little one. Yeah, they would. No, I, I would just walk. It's about a half a mile along a sandy road. And then once you get to the town, and again, this is from the website. We haven't actually been there. There are a couple of restaurants. There are a couple of little shops. So I don't think it takes very much time to see the town, but it would be kind of a unique experience. And I don't know. I'm assuming maybe you could get a margarita over there, Matt. Might be able to do that. Yeah. Have lunch and and shop a little bit and then walk back to the river. Right. Now, this is key. You must, must look at the website and find out the days and the hours that you can do this because it could change. So right now in the busy season from November 2nd through April 30th, you can cross over Wednesdays through Sundays from nine to four. But that four o'clock PM is really important because if you come back to the river at 4.30 to be crossed over, you are not coming back until No, you're staying in the um, little village overnight. You, You got the next day. (laughs) At 9 a.m., you'd be right there, ready to go. (laughs) And I'm not sure what the lodging facilities are in that little town. You might be bedding down with the (laughs) burrows. Yeah, I I would not miss the 4 p.m. cutoff. No, I would not either. Um, And then in the slower season from May 1st to November 1st, the port of entry is open just Fridays through Mondays from 9 to 4 But again, please confirm this on the park website. We don't want to be responsible for people being stranded in Boquillas del Carmen. No. So those are a couple of areas along the river that you can hike. Let's Mm -hmm. move to the mountains. Yes. So the mountain hikes are located in the Chisos Basin area. The first two we're going to talk about, people can get a little confused about this because they almost have the same name. So there is the Window View Trail, which is only 0.3 miles round trip. It's easy. It's paved and wheelchair accessible. uh, And it just circles a little low hill uh, with great views of the mountain peaks surrounding the, the Chisos Basin area. 
and there is a view through the window. It's also a great sunset spot because it looks out to the west. So that's the window view, the short one. Right. Now, the longer one is the window trail, and this is 5.6 miles round trip, so it's much, much longer. And it goes, the trail goes down through Oak Creek Canyon all the way to the window pour-off, which frames the desert. It's an absolutely beautiful vista right there. Now, sometimes during wetter periods, Oak Creek might be flowing, and you might have to cross it a couple times, but you do want to be careful when you get to the window pour-off. <laughs> yeah, that window pour-off, it is just a cliff. It's slick rock. It's It's been smoothed by millions of years of water. There's no railings, uh, and it's kind of hard to see over the edge of it without getting right to the edge, and it slopes downward. That's kind of a, a treacherous little spot, um, so you need to be super careful, especially with kids. Yes, there is a huge, huge drop-off at the end of this pour-off, so don't let your kids run to this view in the window because, like Matt said, it's very slippery, polished rock, but it's a fantastic hike. And just remember <laughs> that going back, the return hike is all uphill, so you want to save a little energy for the return hike. Yeah, I, I thought that that was an enjoyable hike, and it didn't seem too strenuous. No, that is one of our favorite trails. And another favorite trail, everyone's favorite trail, is the Lost Mine Trail. 4.8 miles round trip, and that is, that's in a little bit different area away from the Chisos Mountain Lodge parking lot. A little bit more wilderness-y. Yes, this is a gorgeous hike. You know, the landscape on the entire hike is beautiful with some incredible views. And I don't remember it being terribly strenuous. No, but it does have about 1,100 feet of elevation gain over 2.4 miles. Now, if you want strenuous, <laughs> you'll want to climb Emory Peak. This one is 10 and a half miles round trip and 2,500 feet of elevation gain. Yeah, and I guess the last quarter of a mile or so, it, it's a pretty steep climb. The last 25 feet or so is scramble with exposed rock. But then you end up with a 360-degree view at the top, which is also the highest point in the park. You know, like most parks, there is a hike for everyone here, whether you want to do 0.3 miles or you want to do 10.5 miles. So as we always say, check with the ranger and, and find the hikes that are suitable for you because Big Bend has um, has something for everyone. All right, let's talk about a couple of desert hikes that we liked. Now, there are two with similar names that we're going to talk about. So there's the lower Borough Mesa pour-off. That's just one mile round trip. You get to the end of the trail and you're at the bottom of a 100-foot dry pour-off. So that's pretty cool. It's usually dry and it is also, it's smooth, it's polished because water has poured over it for forever. Right. So that's the lower pour-off. So you're hiking to the bottom of the pour-off. But if you want to hike to the top of the pour-off, that's Upper Borough Mesa pour-off trail. That's longer at 3.8 miles round trip. And this will take you to the top of the pour-off. The elevation change is about 500 feet. Yeah, which is not much for 3.8 miles, although half of that's out. So you got about 500 feet across maybe two miles, which is, is not too much of a Incline. Right. Now, one of our favorite hikes was Grapevine Hills. That's just 2.2 miles round trip. And that takes you to a group of balanced rocks. Remember, we were uh, doing some poses where. I, I do remember. <laughs> I still remember. This was early in your social media aspirations <laughs> where you were posing as if you were holding the balanced rock over your head. Right. Yeah. That, right. And yeah. that photo will never see the light of day. <laughs> I might have to I might have to figure out how to post something on Instagram on our account. Oh, I'm sure it's and been just deleted. Like try to put that a blast from the past. Now, one thing to note, um, there is a, a dirt road that you have to take to the trailhead. If you look at the NPS website today, it says in red bold type, the road is very rough and requires a sturdy high clearance vehicle. Do not attempt to reach this trail with a passenger car, minivan, or RV. However, before you cancel this hike out, I would definitely check with the ranger, check at the visitor center about that because 
Well, first of all, we didn't have any trouble in our rental car. And second, I've been looking at recent um, trail reports of this hike on all trails, and people said the road was totally passable. So maybe there are just times when it's washed out due to a storm. But I, I think that could change, right? Yeah, as is the case with a lot of desert roads. Yes. The conditions are everything. We've been down roads that are perfectly fine. And then two weeks later, rain comes through and, and it's impassable. So yeah, you have to know what the current conditions are. We we were there in a rental car and, and drove it just fine. But remember, that was like 10, 12 years ago, something like that. So who knows what has happened to the road since. Yes. But if you can get there in your um, passenger car, you should definitely do this hike. Okay. Any other hikes, Karen? Uh, yeah, I've got one more listed on here that we really liked, and that was the Chimneys Trail, about 4.8 miles round trip, moderate. And there was a, there's a fun surprise you can look for on this trail. Petroglyphs. We always love seeing petroglyphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. so if you're a petroglyph hunter, um, there are some at the base of one of the chimneys. Yeah, it took us a while to find them uh, Mm -hmm. because we were wandering around the chimneys. It did take a while. A ranger had told us that they were there and we did eventually find them. But yeah, it's kind of like a treasure hunt. Yes, looking for petroglyphs is always a treasure hunt. And it's it's a thrill to see them when when you finally find them. So those are some of the hikes we did and recommend. Now, obviously there are a lot of other hikes so, um, you know, take a look at the park website, talk to the ranger, but there are certainly more than we have mentioned here. Now, there are some scenic drives. There, There's a lot of road in this park. There's over 100 miles of paved road. There's 160 miles of backcountry dirt roads. Uh, one of the best drives is the six-mile drive up to Chiso's Basin. You increase in elevation, so you're going from the desert up into the mountains. That, that's always a fun drive. Yeah, you know, it rises 2,000 feet from the desert floor up to the mountains. So you see the landscape change as you're going up this really scenic winding road. Now, it's not recommended for trailers longer than 20 feet or RVs over 24 feet because there are some sharp curves and steep grades as much as 15%. Uh, but we would recommend, even if you're not staying at Chiso's Lodge or you're not doing any of the hikes up there, definitely take the drive up there just to see how beautiful it is. Right. That was a great scenic drive. Also, there's the Ross Maxwell Scenic Drive. It's a 30-mile road through some of the most uh, beautiful areas of the park. It has scenic overlooks and it has some exhibits along the way. Right. There's um, Mule Ears Overlook and Tough Canyon, um, all great stops. You can also stop at the Castellan Historic Compound and check out the visitor center there if you happen to be there when it's open. You know, another thing uh, this park is great for is stargazing. It is a dark sky park. It was designated that in 2012. Yes. And you know what I read, Matt? I read that measurements have shown that Big Bend has the darkest skies in the lower 48. (laughs) Yeah. So if you're standing there gazing at the stars and you feel things crawl across your feet, you probably can't see them because it'll be so dark. (laughs) Wow, Matt. <laughs> that is a selling point. <laughs> it's always what I worry about. What's the stargazing? What kind of what kind of things are you uh, worried that are going to crawl across your feet in Big Bend? Tarantulas, snakes, mm-hmm. big jackrabbits. <laughs> yeah, we didn't talk about the wildlife. We saw in the uh, Chiso's Mountain Visitor Center, they have a huge stuffed mountain lion right. on oh, display. Mountain lion, mountain lion stepping yeah. on my feet while yeah. I'm looking at the stars. Mm-hmm. I was worried after we saw that mountain lion, and then we went to do the Lost Mine Trail. Uh, I was worried about mountain lions. Uh, however, I think the chances of seeing one in broad daylight are pretty slim. Yeah. Didn't a ranger tell us one time that not many visitors see mountain lions, but the mountain lions see the visitors? <laughs> you know that's true. <laughs> yeah. But in all seriousness, the rangers will also tell you if you're hiking with kids to not let them run ahead of you or lag behind you, have them stay close and hike in the middle of the group. All right. So another thing you could do is visit 
the nearby town of Terlingua, which is called Terlingua Ghost Town, even though it's not so much of a ghost town anymore. No, I mean, there could be ghosts, but there are also people living there. It's a little thriving little village. I guess it was a ghost town at one time because there was mining operations in the area that that kind of shut down. But sometime in the 1960s, people started going back there. And now it is most famous for, I think it's most famous for, the Chili Cook-Off, which they claim is the world championship chili cook-off that's in Terlingua, Texas. Right. It's held on the first Saturday in November. Now, Matt, the very first cook-off started back in 1967, and it only had two cooks. There was a New Yorker, H. Allen Smith, and Texas legend Wick Fowler. So they had this cook-off to settle the dispute over who knew more about chili, Texans or New Yorkers. There were three judges, and the contest ended in a draw. But now, of course, it's become huge. It's a it's an entire weekend festival that draws thousands of people. They have live music. And I guess the thing to do is, because I've always wondered, you know, there is very little lodging there. Everybody camps. So it's like a giant... Um, It'd be like Woodstock. It would be a it would be a chilly Woodstock. That's right. Um, with people everywhere, unbathed people everywhere. I thought you wanted to go. You're. Sad. I did. No, I do. I do. I'd, I'd, I'd love to go. No, I, I'd I'd love to go. It, it would be fantastic. It, it's it's the chilly cookoff. Yeah. Yeah. You have to win a qualifying cookoff somewhere in the world to qualify to even be in this thing. So these people know what they're doing. Oh, yes. No, it's very serious. This is a very prestigious cook-off. And, you know, for the person who wins, I think it's it's huge. Now, we have mentioned before, uh, when we go into Terlingua, we like to stop at Long Drop Pizza. Um, they have some good pizza and beer there. Uh, we first heard about that place when we visited Glacier Bay National Park. Um, and a ranger there uh, who we did a, a tour with, he told us specifically about Long Draw Pizza. He did. He was very generous with his time. And when he heard that we were going to all the national parks, I mean, he spent a couple of hours writing out trails and, and suggestions about all these parks because he had been to most of the parks himself. And, and one of his suggestions was when you're in Big Bend, Go to Terlingua, go to Long Draw Pizza. So that's how we found that. But make sure if you want to go to Terlingua and specifically go to Long Draw Pizza, make sure you get online and check their hours because I believe they're closed two days a week. So you don't want to, you know, go all the way there and find them closed. But we had uh, people tell us, we wrote about this in our book, Dear Bob and Sue, about Long Draw Pizza. And we had someone tell us recently that they went in there they told the person behind the counter, we read about you in the book. And the person behind the counter said, yeah, dear Bob and Sue, we know, we know, we know. Yeah, <laughs> so, so we've sent some business to so, Long Draw over the years. Right. So we need to go back and say, hey, how about a free how pizza? How about a free pizza <laughs> and a beer to go with that? Yeah. So next time we go to Ben, we'll try that. We'll let you know if it works. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so as far as where to stay, you've got some camping options. I mean, you could stay in Terlingua. There are some lodging options there, not a ton. There's also the town of Marathon, which is about 30 miles to the north of the northernmost park entrance. And that was a cute town. We we drove through there. If you're coming the way we did, everyone will drive through Marathon. It was that was a cute little town. Yeah, I remember it ha having like interesting shops and uh -huh. restaurants. So uh, you know, Marathon might be a, a good option. Right, and we're saying this because, as we said before, when the Chisos Mountain Lodge shuts down. Lodging is going to be really tough to find. And here's the thing, too. They're, they're saying it's going to start at the end of 2024. Now, of course, that could be delayed till 2025. But if you're booking at the end of 2024, and I think they're still taking reservations, you definitely want to be asking them about the closure so you don't, so they don't cancel on you a month before. So it's going to be a little tricky. And I think it's really going to impact the number of visitors to the park just because of the lack of lodging. Yeah, so you're going to have to spend more time figuring out your lodging if you're going to go to this park. Uh, and again, if you're going to go early November, uh, the 
just know that the Trilingua area is going to have thousands of extra visitors and campers in the area to, for that chili cook-off. So yeah, you're going to have to plan where you're going to stay. Right. Now, the other option we mentioned before is camping. A lot of people camp in the park and they have four campgrounds. So the NPS operates three developed front country campgrounds. And then the concessionaire Aramark operates one. You know, they have everything from tent camping to full hookups for RV camping, pretty much whatever anybody needs, you could find it in Big Bend. Yeah. And you can probably find all those details on recreation.gov. Sure. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now here's another thing. And we did not do this, but if you're in the area, there is a state park that's adjacent to Big Bend National Park. It's Big Bend Ranch State Park. Right. And every time we post about state parks on Instagram, you know, talking about some of our favorites, people always mention Big Bend Ranch State Park. So we haven't been there yet. But if you're in the area and you have a lot of extra time, maybe you're spending the winter, you know, driving around in your RV, I think you'd absolutely want to check out that state park because uh, people seem to love it. Okay. So Karen, how much time do you think people should spend on a visit to Big Bend National Park? You know, we spent three days and I thought that was perfect. Now, you know, if you only have two days, you could see a lot. And I know people go for a week, like the week of spring break, and there's certainly enough to fill a week. So it just kind of depends. You know, if you're doing this four park national park trip, if you're if you're adding on the three other national parks, you're going to be a little pressed for time, assuming you only have maybe nine days. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of driving and a lot of ground to cover, a lot of parks, but that that is a great trip. It's a little bit of a loop to hit all four of those national parks. That, that'd be a fantastic Texas, New Mexico national park road trip. Well, absolutely. And it makes so much sense because, you know, as we said before, Big Bend is so remote that instead of just figuring out how to get there and only seeing Big Bend, you might as well spend some extra days and go to the ones that are fairly close <laughs> right? Uh, in the same general area. But yeah, a great uh, Southwest, a great Southwest National Park trip. Yeah. And you can fly in and out of El Paso and there's interesting things to see in El Paso. There's yes. certainly a lot of fantastic uh, food options in El Paso. Oh, so many great Mexican restaurants. Um, yes. We, so we ended up spending the night in El Paso twice. The night we flew in and then the night before we flew out. Tons of lodging, you know, easy to get a rental car. So El Paso is probably the closest, easiest place for people to fly into. Yeah. Okay. All right. So in summary, to all of our non-camping friends, if you're planning a visit to the park this winter or in spring, that's great. But if you're looking at going in 2025 or 2026, you might want to hold off until the new Chisos Mountain Lodge has been built because, you know, spending the night up there in the Chisos Basin and watching the sunset through the window and gazing at the dark night sky, I think that's something that's worth waiting for. Yeah, I'm excited for that new facility to be built because I'd like to see that. I would too. Yeah. Okay, that's it for us, folks. Thank you for joining us today. Yes, we have a very exciting episode coming up soon where we interviewed a law enforcement ranger from Canyonlands National Park, the Needles District, and she is going to talk about just an overview of hiking safety and what some of her job descriptions are, some of the things that she does as a law enforcement ranger. Yeah, and we did it remotely, so she couldn't arrest me for some of the things (laughs) I said and some of the questions I asked that probably won't make the final version. (laughs) We were actually in a different state, so I'm not sure her jurisdiction uh, extended to where we were, but uh, yeah, that was a fun interview. It was really fun, so be looking out for that one. Uh, That will be coming soon. Mm -hmm.